Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists who are working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Interviews are conducted with individuals who are doing clinical work, as well as leading attachment theory researchers. Your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, will introduce you to Rebecca Shamoon Shanak, who will discuss reflective supervision and attachment-based therapy. And now your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm so excited uh, about the guest that I have here today who's going to be speaking to us about reflective supervision. Dr. Rebecca Shamoon Chinak, who is an LCSW and also a PhD. She is a clinician, um, author, uh, pregnancy and parenting expert in the preschool field. She's been working on integrating um, the idea of mindfulness into her work. She has a fantastic article um, that she uh, authored with Dan Siegel called Reflective Communication, Cultivating Mindsight through nurturing relationships that I would refer all of you to. Um, She just brings a lot of different disciplines together as a psychologist, a social uh, social worker, and an early childhood educator. She also has extensive experience um, in psychoanalysis and infant mental health and has worked with developmental uh, issues and issues of trauma in young children. In addition to all that, she's also a child parent psychotherapy trainer. Uh, She and I actually met through Drs. Howard and Miriam Steele. Uh, We were both going to video intervention therapy training at uh, the new school with Dr. George Downing, and that is how I met Rebecca. Um, So she also has research going on um, with the new school in their Center for Attachment Research. She gives workshops and courses uh, and and is seen as a foremost expert on reflective supervision uh, all across the country. She co-chairs the Reflective Supervision Collaborative, which is becoming the first long-term training for reflective supervisors and trainers across the country. And so, as I said, I am thrilled to have her here with us today, and I think that you're really going to enjoy this. Hello, everyone. I am so happy to be meeting here today with Dr. Rebecca Shamoon Shanak. Um, and uh, we are going to be talking about the uh, topic of reflective supervision. So, Rebecca, welcome. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to see your smiling face. Yes. So, you know, could you just start out? by giving a definition of reflective supervision for our listeners? You know, what, what is it exactly? So reflective supervision is really a relationship for learning. And when I say that, you can think back to the first relationship for learning, which happens probably from before birth. Um, but certainly from the moment of birth on, um, children's patterns are being set. And so it becomes the first relationship for learning. And then we have other relationships for learning throughout life. And this is a consciously 
um, kind of setup, relationship for learning. And like all relationships that are going to have a big impact, or mo maybe most relationships that are going to have a, a big learning impact, they, they take place regularly and over a period of time. And they are collegial and in sync with attachment theory, they lead with, when, it, when it's successful and going to be secure, it leads with uh, attunement and a sense of making safety for the learner the younger one, even though the age in the in effective supervision, the person who's the supervisor may not actually be older, may even possibly be younger. But um, I think that it's always designated that one is the learner and one is the supervisor. Mm -hmm. Also, there's peer supervision, but I think that's different. Yes. So some people might be familiar when they talk about supervision, they might be talking about clinical supervision. Mm -hmm. um, they might not be saying that, but that that's usually when I hear people talk about supervision, that's what they're meaning or administrative supervision, you know, is your paperwork done, this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, what do you think are some of the things that really set reflective supervision apart uh, from the, some of those other forms of supervision out there that we're doing? So that's a wonderful question, and it brings me back in the history to the history of reflective supervision, which happened through the organization Zero to Three, um, before it was even called Zero to Three. Um, so it began to come together in the late 1980s and very early 90s. And Originally, there was a group. There were a group of people who were meeting not particularly to create a new form of supervision, but the group which I was not a part of um, were thinking: How do we bring the knowledge that we have about social emotional relationships across disciplines? to people who have not been trained in a mental health discipline. So it could be educators, it was physical therapists, it was occupational therapists, it was nurses, it was you know people who would be in a neonatal intensive care unit. And we're thinking, you know, the committee was thinking, how are they going to know for example, in a neonatal intensive care ward, how are they going to know how to boost the relationship between the parent and child when their attention is on saving the life of the child? And and how there's a and and really in in many allied professions there is not a not an emphasis on relationship building. So if you think back to those days, this is before attachment theory really came into ascendance and had, this is parallel to the development of attachment theory and not the, not the theory, but the research about attachment 
theory. That's what I wanted to say. So um, they came up with the idea that people should have regular opportunities to observe and interact with children, very young children and their parent and or their main caregiving person. Um, they should meet with regularity and that those kinds of meetings should be collegial. So if you think about a collegial relationship, even when the responsibility of the supervisor is to make sure that administrative things are done, you it's not like it wouldn't come from the place of the boss telling the underling, you have to have these levels of service, where are they? But more from the point of view of here are the standards of our agency and the requirements of our agency. How are you doing on that? Are you having any problems? Can I give you a hand? And, and sort of being on the same side as the supervisor. Um, and in terms of the question about clinical as compared with reflective supervision, I think that in the beginning, the model was coming from clinical supervision, but it was very, very case-oriented, which clinical supervision is mainly case-oriented and not so much developing awareness within the provider of their own self, their own feelings, and their own imp capacity and impact on the parent and depending on the age of the child, on the child as well, and, as, and on the dyad. So in reflective supervision, there's much more emphasis on relationship building, on self-awareness, other awareness, that also that you're working with a dyad and not only with one person at a time, and that you're cultivating the dyad. So I'll just add one more thought, which is that um, because this was developed within the organization zero to three, it had the luxury of focusing on the very earliest years of life. And now we've extended the idea of reflective supervision um, backwards some into pregnancy. We're working at um, with high risk case of someone who's pregnant. Um, and all the way through five years old. But I think that it was actually had a very salutary impact, a salutary effect on reflective supervision that it was born in the context of zero to two years, zero to three. Yeah, I think the challenge of that has been when you get outside of early childhood work you then you sort of don't hear about it as much anymore you mean reflective supervision yes well um in the circles where i travel people are thinking zero to five not just zero to three mm -hmm. 
And actually, I gave a course a couple of years ago, not, not a long course, just a short course. It's right now, most training in reflective supervision is ridiculously short. Mm-hmm. And the group and I are working on long-term training in reflective supervision because it's a long-term relationship and it really warrants long-term, very deep thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, But I gave this course within the agency that I used to work in that served people um, of all kinds and all ages. And to my amazement, although I had thought of it for the people in the agency who work with zero to five, people from all parts of the agency signed up. Mm-hmm. People that were working in residential treatment, people who were working with older home um, center-bound people, you know, in a, in a residence for psychotic people or people with profound developmental delays, they all came, and by that it opened my eyes. Then we, I also taught it in. Um, uh, the City University of New York, Hunter School of Social Work, which is called the Silverman School of Social Work. And again, we didn't have, in one of the workshops that I gave, we did not have one provider who was working with very young children, although it was offered in that context. So that sort of opened my eyes. And I think that people, you know, got good evaluation so it was clearly helpful to people yes i think because you know most of my career um at chadock um i mean i've worked more with kids over five than under five and i have found that this is so important reflective supervision no matter what the age of uh, the, the client or dyad that you're working with. And that's one of the reasons that I really wanted you to speak to this topic is wanting to, like you said, other people came to this and they really benefited from understanding uh, this idea. And I also really like that you're saying it needs to be a longer training program because I think sometimes I bring this up to people and they're like, oh yeah, um, I had a course on that in grad school, da, 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 da. So, and my experience has been when you're around somebody who is good at this, um, I've been around Michael Trout a lot, um, Patricia Van Horn in the Child Parent Psychotherapy Learning Collaborative, um, not been around you as much, but they have this ability to ask this question, mm that just like stops you in your tracks. It's Mm -hmm. like, you have to think, even if you didn't want to think. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it's a very special skill. You you laugh, you know what I mean, right? And I don't, so so I think these superficial ways of trying to teach this, I don't don't see how that could be as effective. So yeah, that's me talking a lot. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I would like to emphasize from what you said a couple of things. One is that reflective questions or reflective murmuring um, and really mirroring a process um, seems 
is so important. Stanley Greenspan um, taught that the first um, step in, in parent-child development is shared attention. And I think that this is the relationship between a reflective supervisor and supervisee is one of shared and building attention so that contents of mind are truly really shared. And what ends up happening for the supervisee is that they're relieved because they're not carrying their mind about their cases by themselves. Mm. And so that some of the tension that they feel about their case or the worry um, that they feel about their case is not held by them alone. It's held, it's shared, and therefore less toxic. You mentioned CPP before. Um, sometimes I've supervised people in CPP who have 100% trauma cases and they're paid fee for service. They don't have benefits. They have to see lots and lots of people every day of the week. And um, that's almost a recipe for um, secondary trauma. I think that if people can meet in a truly reflective group, I'm not talking about CPP's own consultation groups which are not meant to do this, but if they can, within their supervision and their agency, um, have a supervisor who pauses, who slows things down, who shares their experience, um, and who helps their the individual supervisee or the group, the people in the group supervision to think through, support each other, and to um, and to hear not only the best of the supervisees' work, but also the places where they're most unsure, most frightened, most ashamed. Mm -hmm. That is so important. Mm -hmm. There's no one no matter how experienced we are, that always knows what to do, always knows how to handle something. Um, when we work, especially when we work in public agencies, um, anybody can walk through our doors, and everyone does walk through our doors. Every kind of person, every kind of drug addiction, every kind of trauma, every kind of health problem, um, there's always something new that you yourself may not have had experience with. Or even, you know, I've said, I could say that also as a supervisor, sometimes people bring cases that I know little about let's say a health condition or something but then we pool our resources and we figure out what we need to know and we figure out how to learn more about whatever it is mm -hmm. 
Yes. That's one part of what I want to say. I want to mention one other thing, two other things. One is that um, in early childhood, through five years old, reflective supervision has become uh, accepted as a best practice. So when you said before that it's not so much the case with older children and adults, I wanted to um, confirm that to you, that in earliest childhood across systems, um, ref reflective supervision is said to be or accepted to be um, the best practice. Many systems say that they are doing it, and then they, are, they may be doing it, but they're doing it usually quite unevenly because there has been inadequate training in reflective supervision. All of us that are in, the, um, in this group, work, working group that I'm working with um, who are seminal con contributors to reflective supervision from across the country, we all do our own thing. And we all train one-day trainings, two-day trainings. We train somewhat idiosyncratically. And what we are trying to do in this new project is to build in the best from everybody and then have a long-term, hopefully, at least 18-month training mm. program that will have, it'll be like a learning collaborative. I love it. I'll sign up. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, it's just so needed. And um, I wish it was best practice for all of our work, you know, whether it's early childhood or not. Um, I think we can all, all benefit and, and this is needed. Mm -hmm. It is really needed and it's needed by... Um, I believe that it's needed by providers who are not actually recognized as providers, like let's say the judges and lawyers and family court. Mm. You may not think of them as providers, but they are, and they have a gargantuan effect on children and parents' lives. Mm, that's so true. How do we help and and they are being traumatized I, yes i don't know that for sure but i can only guess they're hearing horrific stuff over days months and years and um they have nobody to talk to about the emotional aspects of what it is that they're thinking and feeling so it must be terrifically hard for them and yeah. i imagine that for some people they have to just close themselves off because how could they bear really feeling their way into um, the facts of the case? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, they may not need reflective supervision in the way, exactly in the way that we do it with clinicians, mm -hmm. disciplines. And I do also want to bring out that I've been talking from the beginning about trans or cross-disciplinary work and I, so to that I want to say all of us are trained in particular disciplines and we're trained to observe in our discipline and that's a wonderful thing 
but a psychologist is trained to see things differently even than the social worker mm-hmm. to train is trained differently than a nurse or a physical therapist yes yeah. ot everyone is trained to see certain things and basically not see everything else and part of the goal of this is to see beyond one's own lenses that was that was and i hope still is the goal of zero to three as an organization mm. together all these lenses and and help us all see through lenses that go beyond the one in which we were trained yeah that's 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 so such a good point and that interdisciplinary approach and it's true that we are trained and with a certain lens of seeing things i was also thinking um before we wrap up here um i was thinking as you were talking a little bit about reflective supervision and and i was thinking um you know when you've experienced somebody who has good training in it. Because like I was saying earlier, it's just this feeling of, wow, that's such a good question. Um, And so you feel it. And that reminded me of, of sometimes when you hear about do unto others as you would have this do unto others and the parallel process and, you know, can we give what we're not experiencing? And I wonder, because what I experienced in that moment is, wow, they, they just really heard me and they're asking something that's so important for me to be able to talk about. So could you say a few words just about how this then relates to how then you work with your, the dyad or a particular client? Well, I'm not sure if this is what you're getting at, but I do want to say that reflective supervision is a form of clinical supervision. So it also is clinical supervision. So when your supervisee leaves, they need to know something more about the case that they're working with. They need to have perhaps options that they hadn't thought of before, or less tension and anxiety in a particular area. Otherwise, they're going to go out and not have more skills than they, or more possibilities. Right. The thing that that is different between a professional and someone with no training is that we have the ability um, and continue to make the ability to step back and think and feel our way into the next steps. We're not just shooting from the hip. Mm. So the reflective supervisor is definitely not only trying to raise questions, but also impart new possibilities in the way that the supervisee can go out and work take the next steps in whatever case they were considering. And then those ideas can become generalized 
to other places, you know, as they get more and more experience over time. Yeah, I think that's, you know, a really lovely way to wrap this up. I love what you said about new possibilities. Um, so we're always looking for new possibilities, and that includes, I've been thinking about this increasingly over the last maybe 10 years, as I've increasingly integrated um, mindfulness practices into reflective supervision. Yes. But we're not, our, our mental health professions are so concentrated on words, talking, that we, and, and also on problems, that we're often going to the problem place and we're often going to words and we have behind what we're doing expectations that the person changes. And I, recent years, thinking so much more about transforming time between people um, so that rather than just going to what we want to you know, tell a parent that they should be doing with their child, we yeah. could maybe just find a way to change it. So uh, now I'm talking sort of in terms of clinical expertise. So rather than, and, and one might do this in a supervision as well, mm -hmm. rather than saying to a parent, you know, it doesn't really help your daughter when you get angry. Although we might say that, we might, we might, when we see that happening, say, that big thing that just happened right now, and, and then say with the dyad that you know pretty well, would it be okay if I sing my favorite song? And then, you know, the favorite song is something that maybe you've even established, or our favorite song, maybe something that you've established before. I always go to Michael Rowyer Boat Ashore because it's easy for me to put in different words. Mm -hmm. So it might be, you know, um, here we are, you know, like, I, I, I'm, I, I'm too embarrassed to sing on this podcast. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We would sing some words and, or maybe just sway to music. Uh -huh. so just put on that music. And then that changes things between people. It or does. How about if we all stamp our feet as hard as we can five times? Is five enough? Maybe we need to do it seven. Mm. Yes. It just moves away from the words, mm -hmm. helps people to change states. Mm -hmm. They you laughing over the fact that you're stamping your feet as loud as you can for as long as you can. And then you end up laughing and then everything is different than once. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's a good, wonderful. Um, using the right brain, movement, rhythm, <laughs> these other pieces that are so important in relationships. So 
Oh, I could talk with you for hours, <laughs> um, but I... It was a beautiful conversation. I thank you so much. For yes, and, and uh, thank, thank you for, for joining me for this today. It's my great pleasure. Thank you so much, Karen. All right, well, goodbye for now. Bye-bye for now. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site at the Knowledge Center at chadock.com or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our broadcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to the Knowledge Center at chadock.com. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.